Calvary Chapel Reading, welcome to the Bible teaching ministry of our senior pastor, Jim Jarrett. Here's Pastor Jim with today's study, designed to help us grow in the Word. Well, if you'll remain standing, take your Bibles and turn, if you will, to Romans chapter 1. So this morning we'll be back in verses 18 through 32. Uh, Then next week, Lord willing, we're going to wrap this up and, and... And then, uh, of course, Lord willing, be back in the book of James. You know, this series of messages that we've done uh, since I came back from having my surgery are just some things that uh, the Lord put on my heart as I was uh, recuperating and uh, watching all that's going on around us. And so that's why uh, the break from James. So Romans chapter 1. Uh, Verses 18 through 32, if you'll follow along now, as I begin in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged the natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. May the Lord bless this reading of his word and our time together in it. You may be seated. Well, before we uh, get going here, I want to take just a moment to say thank you uh, to those of you who... uh, sent Barbara and I a card for Pastor's Appreciation Month. We uh, just want to thank you for your kindness and appreciate it very much. Uh, Also received a very kind note and gift card anonymously under the door in the office. So whoever uh, you are, or maybe it's more than one of you, uh, thank you very much. But uh, uh, we really do appreciate your, your thoughtfulness and your kindness toward us. So thank you. Uh, for those cards and and gifts. Well, as we get going this morning, you know, as we look around at what's going on in our state and and our nation and the world, and in one sense, it really is unbelievable, isn't it? 
because we just never thought we were going to see these things happening, at least not in our lifetime. And we know from Scripture things are going to get worse and, and worse as we approach the Lord's coming, but I don't think we really thought we were going to see it in our life. But we are. And just think of the things that, that we're seeing. I mean, you can't make these things up. I mean, for example, this past week, uh, you know, read about a Florida school board member who's also a teacher uh, chaperoning a group of elementary students to a local gay bar and grill for a field trip. And she was proud of it, posted it online. And apparently this is something they've done for a number of years. There was another incident at a high school where the football team dressed up as cheerleaders. And I get the whole powder puff thing. They've been doing that for years. But this went far beyond that. I mean, these, these boys were dressed up as cheerleaders, and they were being very sensual, giving lap dances to the coaches. There's an elementary school where the children were shown pornographic, a pornographic picture in art class in order that they could learn to draw. And parents are continuing to expose the, the sexual filth that is being taught in our public schools only to be silenced by school boards. You know, a boy wearing a skirt, identifying as a girl, uh, raped a girl in the girl's bathroom in Loudoun County in May. The same boy then went on to sexually molest another female student in an empty classroom in October. And the school board denied knowing anything about it when they, in actuality, they did. And then a convicted sex offender who also identifies as a woman exposed himself to women and young girls at a spa in Los Angeles. And as China is, is testing uh, hypersonic nuclear-capable missiles, what are we doing here in our country? Well, an HHS official, Mr. Levine, or Levin, uh, a transgender who identifies as a woman, was named the first ever female four-star admiral in, in public health corps. Unbelievable. You know, the United States, you probably read this last week, the United States issued the first passport with a gender X designation and expects to be able to offer the option to non-binary, intersex, and, and gender non-conforming people early next year, the State Department said. I mean, this is the madness and the cost of today's gender ideology. And these are just merely a sampling of, of the headlines for the last couple of weeks. You know what's happening to America? Well, the Bible tells us, doesn't it? As a nation, we have rejected God and his word. And we have embraced uh, all forms of immorality and, and celebrate the very things that God condemns. And we are reaping the consequences of our sin as a nation. We have sown to the wind and we are reaping the whirlwind. And no place in Scripture more directly addresses this than does Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 32. I mean, this passage, more than any other, explains the moral chaos and collapse that we're experiencing in our nation at this very moment. As Paul said in verse 18, the wrath of God is continually being revealed or it's perpetually being manifested. In other words, it's happening now. America is under God's judgment, His wrath of abandonment, which, as you know from our study, speaks of God actively removing His hand of restraining grace and then giving individual sinners as well as nations over to pursue their sin and then giving them up to suffer the consequences. And as a nation, we have abandoned God, and He has returned the favor. I mean, this wrath, Paul says, is be being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Men are, are constantly attempting to suppress the truth by their sin because there's truth that God has made known about himself to mankind that, that man is suppressing. And this very action provokes God to wrath. And in verses 19 to 23, we saw the reasons for God's wrath. 
God has made himself known to every single person on the face of the earth. And he's done so through what is called general revelation. And through general revelation or through creation, God has made his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature known to every person through what he has made. So that Paul says it's clearly seen, clearly recognized in creation. And not only has God revealed himself through creation, he has also placed an inner sense of his existence and his moral laws inside of every single person. And so every man knows that God exists. All men, even the most wicked, have some internal knowledge or perception of God's existence, of his power and character, that that he is a powerful creator. And they also have an inner awareness of his moral demands. And this is why Paul says in the last sentence of verse 20, no one has an excuse for not believing in God. Because God is evident everywhere. There is no excuse. There will be no defense on judgment day. All men are without excuse. No one will be able to plead ignorance. But even though God has made himself known to every man, Men, by and large, have rejected this knowledge of God. They refuse to acknowledge God. Sinful man refuses to recognize God and to glorify Him and to honor Him, and they refuse to give Him thanks. And as a result of their rejection, Paul says, they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. So they became futile in their thinking. The the sin of rejecting the truth about God inevitably results in a devastating effect upon one's thinking processes. In short, it it, it short-circuits man's rational abilities. Man's thought presses become ungodly so that that he's without insight or understanding, and this is descriptive of, of the unredeemed man's heart. I mean, this is the man who is without insight into moral or religious things and thus is so blinded that sin, that that evil is thought of as good and good as evil. I mean, these God-rejectors are incapable of having rational thoughts about God. Paul says their foolish hearts were also darkened. You know, rejecting the light, their hearts became darkened. Because when fallen man puts the truth of God out of his life, he creates a vacuum, and the darkness of spiritual falsehood replaces it. The light that God had given men in nature becomes darkness in them, and they're, they're left to grope in the dark about who God is and, and what he's like. And, and out of this darkness, out of this refusal to acknowledge God, comes a growth and an increase in human arrogance. I mean, truth is gone. And so falsehood and arrogant foolishness rule instead. But this doesn't stop man from thinking that he's wise. What did Paul say in verse 22? Claiming to be wise, they became what? Fools. Instead of being wise, the outcome was was the total opposite. They became absolute fools who are incapable of any sound thinking about God and the ultimate issues in life. And this futility of of thinking, this darkening of the heart and and claiming to be wise, uh, but in reality being a fool is just one more example of God's righteous wrath of abandonment against those who have rejected his revelation. And of course, the inevitable consequence of rejecting the truth about God is devastating. And Paul writes that if you look at verse 33 or 23, They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. This is man at his very lowest. This is man spiraling down into a lower state of debased thinking and depraved living. You see, man is a a religious being who by nature is bound to worship and serve something beyond himself. And if he will not have the true God, he'll invent a God that he can live with. I mean, anyone who rejects the Creator will end up worshiping the creature. I mean, this is idolatry. And man's idolatry ultimately, even though he will not admit it, is the worship of self. And he'll soon invent gods that are convenient projections of his own selfish plans and decrees. 
Now, these gods may be wooden figures or they may be things we desire. They may even be misrepresentations of God himself, a result of making God in their own image instead of the reverse. But the common denominator is this, idolaters worship the things God made rather than God himself. And this will absolutely bring about the judgment of God on the unbeliever and the discipline of God in the life of a believer. Because God will not tolerate idolatry of any kind. And in verses 24 to 32, we're going to see that this downward spiral doesn't end with idolatry. Oh, no. No, it doesn't stop with idolatry. It gets even worse. It goes even lower, ending with people involved in gross sin and debauchery. And even though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice these things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. Here is the reality that God has abandoned those who have repeatedly rejected Him. I mean, when God abandons a person or a society and and gives them up to go unrestrained in the direction that they have chosen, reaping the consequences of their sin, at that point, they rarely find their way back to God, apart from divine intervention, because there's nothing impossible for God. I mean, there is nothing more terrifying than what we see here in this passage. This tragic reality has occurred to nations, cultures, and denominations. It has occurred to countless individuals down through the centuries. I mean, here is the only explanation for much of the moral collapse that we're seeing today around us. This is what's wrong with America. God has abandoned America. And Paul declares God's abandonment in verse 24. The first part of verse 24, notice we read, Therefore, God gave them up. You'll notice Paul begins with the word, therefore. Therefore refers back to the reasons given in verses 18 to 23. It serves as a bridge that connects what Paul has just said with what he's now going to say in verses 24 to 32. And of course, in the previous verses, Paul described man's intentional rejection of the knowledge of God with an ungrateful heart. And when anyone rejects the truth about God, they, they, have, a cho- they have chosen a path that takes them further away from God. And the longer they continue to reject God, the further they drift away from Him into the darkness of sin. And then at some point, not only to God, this continual rejection of God inevitably leads to divine judgment. Divine abandonment. But of course, this is exactly what man has been fighting for ever since Adam's first rebellion in the Garden of Eden. I mean, man has wanted to get rid of God. You know, to push God out of his life. He's saying, God, I just want you to leave me alone. I want you to let me live my life the way I want to live it. And there comes a point when God does. And isn't that what men want? I mean, yes, it is. It's what we think we want. But the problem is that it doesn't turn out as we anticipate. In fact, it turns out exactly the opposite. We think that by living our lives apart from God, we'll be happy and free. But it doesn't work that way. Instead of happiness, we find misery. Instead of freedom, we find the debilitating bondage and darkness of sin. What the world offers out as freedom is nothing but chains and sin and bondage. So Paul says, therefore, or in light of the fact that God revealed himself to man, but man has willfully rejected that knowledge and turned to idolatry, in light of that, he says, God gave them up. He gave them up. And gave them up is a single word in the Greek, and it's a very strong verb, meaning to hand someone over to the power and authority of another. It is that act of God whereby He hands over men for judgment because of their sins. In the New Testament, this word is used of giving one's body to be burned in 1 Corinthians 13.3. 
It's used three times of Jesus giving himself up to death. Galatians 2.20, Ephesians 5.2 and 25. It's also used in a judicial sense of men being committed to prison or, or to judgment and of rebellious angels being delivered to pits of darkness. This word is also used of the Father delivering the Son to His sacrificial death. That's the way Paul used it in Romans 4.25 when he said that Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. This word describes Jesus being given up or given over to the judgment of God upon the cross when he bore our sin. This word is used the same way in Romans 8.32 where Paul writes, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. Jesus was delivered up to judgment for our sins upon the cross. He suffered under the full force of God's wrath as he died in the place of sinners. This word is used in 1 Corinthians 5.5 where Paul says that a sinning believer in the church at Corinth needed to be delivered to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. And this delivering was not a passive, you know, standing aside by Paul and the leaders of the church allowing the man to remain a part of the fellowship. Rather, this delivering involved the the the, the, uh, the action of, of putting him out of the fellowship, delivering him up to the realm of the devil. And today this phrase, God gave them up, sounds like a simple hands-off policy, uh, policy in which men and women were, were freed and uh, freed up to just pursue and practice, you know, just whatever they think will please them, and, and God is merely just an interested bystander, you know, just standing by watching what's going on. I mean, God gave them up sounds as if God simply lets people drift off to nowhere. But that is not the idea. It's not that God is just standing there going, wow, they've rejected me, they've rejected my truth, they refuse to honor me and, and give thanks to me, and now they're worshiping idols. Boy, I wonder what's going to happen next. That may not turn out well. That's not it at all. Rather, it's God looking down and saying, you've rejected me. You continue to reject me. You continue to reject the truth of my word. You've turned to idols. You're worshiping idols instead of me. You're giving your worship to idols. You refuse to honor and thank and give glory to me. That's what you want? Fine. That's what you get. It's God giving, actively giving to them what they want. The idea is not that God passively gives men up to nothing, but rather that he actively gives them over to the devastating consequences of the rebellious, sinful direction that they have taken, which leads them to becoming even more deeply engrossed in sin. This is a judicial abandonment to the consequences of their rebellion. And God takes an active involvement in giving people over to the sinful desires of their hearts. Now, certainly, they are responsible for their choices. And God isn't making them do this. They're responsible for their choices. And in one sense, God may be viewed as allowing sin to take its normal course, but in the end, God's giving people over to sin is an active process on his part, whether for correction or for judgment or for both. And as it's been said, the punishment of sin is sin. And so when a person defiantly, continually rejects the knowledge of God, the truth of God, he may find himself being given up by God. And what did God give them up to? wasn't just nothing. What did God give them up to? Well, in the rest of verse 24, Paul describes this abandonment by God. Look back at verse 24. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts. The word translated here as lusts can refer to any desire, but it was most often used of carnal desire. In other words, a strong craving 
for what is sinful and, and forbidden. I mean, this longing for evil refers to the vile passions that have been bound up in their sinful, depraved hearts. And the word heart is used metaphorically in Scripture for the whole thinking process, including the will and, and motivations. It does not represent the emotions or the feelings as it generally does in, in society today. In its broadest sense, the, the heart represents the basic nature of a person, his inner being and character. I mean, the heart then speaks of the thinking processes, the will, the, the, the internal character and, and the motivation. And so God gave them up to the sinful cravings of their hearts or, or their inner being. See, man's sin begins within himself. It's nobody else's fault. Nobody else or, or nothing externally caused you to sin. Man's sin begins within himself. Jesus said, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. Jeremiah said in that verse that we're all familiar with, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? A man is not inherently good, as psychology would have us to believe. And that's why psychology is of no help, because it doesn't deal with the root of the problem. And the problem is the heart. Man is not inherently good. As the, as the Scripture makes clear, man is inherently evil. Man is sinful. He has a sinful, unbelieving heart. That's the root of the problem. Romans 3.10, Paul says, As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. So how many? Not one. And he put that extra phrase in there because somebody would have said, Except me. And he said, no, not one. And then he went on to describe man. There's none righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is, there is no fear of God before their eyes. That's Paul's description of an unbeliever. And later on he says, For all have what? Sin. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Man is basically evil. And the problem is the inner condition of his heart which desires what is sinful and what is forbidden. That's the problem. And speaking about believers as well as unbelievers, James said in chapter 1, verse 14, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire or his own lust. And so what's Paul telling us here? That when men abandon God, God abandons them and gives them up to the lusts which come from within their sinful hearts. And the sin was present in the heart before it was ever manifested in the body. So he says, therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to what? Impurity. Impurity. When Paul says that God abandoned them in the lust of their hearts to impurity, he means that they are descending. They're going downward. They're going from bad to worse. The strong desire of lust leads to sensual acts of impurity. They're just plunging lower and lower to a deeper involvement in wickedness. And the word impurity originally meant the state of being dirty. It is the opposite of the word for cleanse or clean. And the word was used medically to describe an oozing wound which would make a person ceremonially unclean. In Scripture, the term is used of both moral and ceremonial uncleanness. Any impurity that prevents a person from approaching God. And Paul used the word almost exclusively of moral 
impurity. And so it's just another way to define sexual immorality. It refers to any kind of sexual sin. It's, it's being morally impure. It encompasses every sexual perversion that is outside of the husband-wife relationship. It covers every filthy sexual act from pornography to adultery, bestiality, and things that aren't even mentionable. And so Paul is telling us here that when a person rejects God, they may find themselves on a course that spirals downward leading to sexual immorality. And we see the result of this in verse 24, the rest of verse 24. God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity or sexual immorality, which resulted in, look at what we see, the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. One translation puts it, God abandoned them to do whatever shameful thing their hearts desired. As a result, they did vile and degrading things with each other's bodies. John Stott said, the history of the world confirms that idolatry leads to immorality. A false image of God leads to a false understanding of sex. And that's exactly right. Because most idolatry is the worship of self. And when you're at the center of your universe and you're worshiping yourself, it's all about you and your wants and your desires. And you will do anything and everything you want regardless of who it hurts or how painful it is to anyone else. That's what the worship of self leads to. Never saying no to self. To be dishonored, the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, that word dishonored describes all kinds of shameful sexual acts committed in their bodies. And Paul doesn't uh, tell us what kind of sexual sin he has in mind here, for which we're glad. Um, but it's most likely heterosexual, fornication, adultery, lewdness, prostitution. It's any sex outside of marriage. And Paul does tell us that it involved the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. And he's right. Because illicit sex, any sex outside the confines of marriage, degrades people's humanness. But as one man said, sex in marriage, as God intended, ennobles it. And so God gives them up. And they turn to sexual immorality. They turn to sexual activity, sexual deviation, sexual promiscuity, and, and as we'll see, sexual perversion. And if there has ever been a society preoccupied with this, it's ours. In 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 3 to 5, Paul speaks to this. He says there, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles or the pagans who do not know God. And so if you're a believer, you ought to know how to control your body. Why? Well, because the Holy Spirit of God indwells us and He enables and empowers us to walk in the Spirit so that we will not fulfill the lusts or desires of the flesh. And one aspect of the fruit of the Spirit is what? Self-control. So Paul says you should know how to control your own body, not in the passion of lust like the pagans who don't know God. And of course the implication is that pagans can't control their bodies. They're without self-control when it comes to their lusts. Because as Paul said in Ephesians 4.19, they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. So they'll go out and dishonor their bodies by participating in illicit sex because that's what their lusts tell them to do. That's what they want to do. And what are the consequences? Paul says it dishonors and, and degrades men and women. It robs them of their dignity. It destroys their integrity. It reveals their dishonesty. It, it steals their peace. And in its place, it gives them fear and torment and shame. Maybe not at first, because sin is pleasurable for a season. But they will reap the consequences. 
It causes tremendous guilt and anxiety that torments the conscience. It causes jealousy, anger, bitterness. It can lead to violence, abuse, even murder. It destroys relationships. It destroys a good name. It wipes out a marriage. It utterly devastates a family and children. It can result in unwanted pregnancies, which can lead to abortion. It can result in sexually transmitted diseases, some incurable, some even deadly. Sexual sin destroys. The consequences of it are horrendous. And this is why the Bible often exhorts believers to avoid sexual sin, to flee sexual immorality. Some have says, well, you know, did God, the creator of sex, has he decided here that he made a mistake? Well, no, of course not. God invented sex, and that might be news to some of you. Maybe you thought you did. God invented sex when he created us. And God invented sex as a pleasurable part of the unique relationship between one man and one woman within the confines of the marriage relationship. And within the confines of the marriage relationship, it's beautiful. It's not just for procreation, it's for a husband and wife to enjoy. But like most gifts, like most any gift that God has given us, it has its proper and, and improper uses. What was created by God to be an expression of faithfulness, intimacy, comfort, and and sheer pleasure within marriage can also be the expression of uh, extreme selfishness, betrayal, deception, and manipulation. In its rightful place, uh, sexual intimacy builds oneness, unity, and it deepens intimacy in a marriage. I mean, it's a wonderful sex is a wonderful gift to be shared by those for whom God designed it one man and one woman within the confines of the marriage relationship. But again, used wrongly, it destroys. destroys lives and relationships. It undermines trust and acceptance. Because sex is such a powerful and essential part of what it means to be human, uh, it has to be guarded carefully and treated with great respect. I mean, sexual desires are of such importance that the Bible gives them special attention and calls for more careful restraint and self-control with them than any other desire. Why? Because it's so destructive. You see, Paul is designating sexual sin as being in a, in a, a special class all by itself. Sexual sin is a self-inflicted destruction that does damaging harm to one's body. It, it affects the body like no other sin. The one who commits sexual sin is playing with a consuming fire. I mean, all sexual sin is a self-damaging sin and destroys a person like no other sin can. You say, what's the point? Simply this, that one of the clearest indications of a society or a person in rebellion against God is the rejection of God's guidelines for the use of sex. But that's how it goes in a society where God has abandoned them. Their sinful desire then is for impurity, for sexual immorality, and it comes from within. It comes out of a heart. And it manifests itself in a dishonoring of the body and illicit sexual practices. They're just lustful. They're immoral. Why? Because God gave them up. He gave them over to the consequences of their own sinfulness. And so when we see all the sexual immorality, when we see all of of this sexual promiscuity in, in our country that is glamorized and promoted by Hollywood and celebrities, we have to realize that God is not about to judge America. God is judging America already. There's no doubt about it. We don't have to wait for judgment. 
We're already being judged by the fact that God has abandoned this society to its own unrestrained, escalating sinfulness with all of its consequences. He's given us up to suffer the consequences of our own sinning. I mean, God abandons sinful, truth-rejecting man or or a nation to the self-destruction of their own sinfulness. This is His present wrath of abandonment at work. When He just gives people over to the self-destruction of their own sinfulness. Listen to what one man wrote. Any society that rejects God and His truth will find itself devolving downward into baser sins. No culture that refuses the divine standard is evolving upward to a higher level of morality. Every society is descending into a cesspool of iniquity. Those who reject the knowledge of God find themselves wallowing in lower forms of immoral filth. Whenever any society or nation rejects the knowledge of God, it descends into unrestrained sexual immorality. Whenever a religious group or church denomination chooses a course that rejects the clear teaching of God's Word, it will eventually tolerate and even endorse immorality. This will even be true of the lifestyle of its own pastors and membership. And so it is, he says, with any people who reject the truth of God. They will be abandoned by God and given over to lower and lower immoral filth. So the first result, then, of God's wrath is seen in God giving men up to impurity, to sexual immorality, and then suffering its consequences. You see, God gives men and women up to go as far down as they want to go. And the present outworking of his wrath is seen in his actively removing his restraining power and actively giving them up to the devastating consequences of their sin. What we have in verses 24 to 32 are the dimensions of the depravity to which unbelieving men and women will go. God gave them up. God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Why? Paul gives us the reasons now in verse 25. Here's why God is opposed to such sinners. Notice verse 25. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. Paul says they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Men are guilty of trading in truth and embracing a lie. They willfully choose to embrace a lie rather than the truth. They had the truth of God revealed to them through creation. It was visible all around them. It's written in their hearts. But they didn't want the truth, and so they rejected it, and they exchanged it for the lie. And what is the lie? The lie is that God is not God, that God doesn't have to be obeyed or honored or glorified. But that's not not something that uh, unbelievers do. That's something that believers are guilty of as well. See, the problem with most, most believers is not that they don't know enough truth. The problem with most believers is they don't obey the truth they know. And they willfully choose to embrace a lie rather than the truth. What lie? Well, that God doesn't have to be obeyed. That they can live their life however they want to in these certain areas. They've exchanged the truth for a lie. They believe the lie that the creature is more desirable than God and that something or someone is to be worshipped in place of the one true God. So they believed a lie. What happened? Consequently, look at verse 25. Well, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served what? The creature rather than the creator, which is idolatry. This restates what Paul said in verse 23. That they exchanged the glory and the immortal of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. 
So their foolishness led them to exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for idols. And they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. And when it says they worshiped and served, it means they adored and served. They, they worshiped the idols or the things they loved rather than the creator. You wonder, how could anyone end up in such a degrading place? Simple. They rejected the knowledge of God when it was made known to them. Then they find themselves groping in greater darkness, grasping for anything to worship. Many worship a man-made idol. Others worship their own bodies. Still others worship their possessions. Yet others worship their career. But they worship something or someone other than God. You know, and what is an idol anyway? Well, it may be in the form of a false deity cut out of wood or stone, a shape, you know, shaped from metal. When you get right down to it, an idol can be anything that a person loves more than God. It's anything that one fears more than God. Anything that a person values and pursues more than God. It is anything that one serves more than him. An idol is not necessarily something that is sinful in and of itself. Oh, no. No, an idol can be something that is intrinsically good. Uh, An idol can be something good like a job that provides money for your family. It can be something good like a spouse or a child or... It's anything that a person prioritizes above God. What's the number one priority in your life? That's your God. And there have always been people who worship the idols of wealth, health, pleasure, prestige, sex, sports, education, entertainment, celebrities, success, and power. And at no time in history have those forms of idolatry been more pervasive and and corrupting than in our own day, and not only in the world, but in the church. And that's why John, writing to believers, said, My little children, keep yourselves from idols. And earlier John wrote, do not love the world or the things in the world. Bottom line, an idol is anything in the world that a person loves more than God. Everyone worships something. And when people reject the knowledge of God, when they reject the truth of God, they're going to give their affections and their allegiance to something else. And whatever that something is, it becomes an idol, whether it's made with their hands or it's conceived with their minds. And whatever a person worships, whatever that person's God is, they will serve it wholeheartedly. Whatever a person worships, they will give, it its, they will give to it uh, their time and their resources. You know, what a person is preoccupied with determines what he's going to serve. And such misplaced affections cause an individual to serve the creature rather than the creator. And so once again, we see that idolatry initiates the sequence, doesn't it? We first read that they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity. And then we read, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. And guess what? God again responds in verses 26 and 27 by giving them up not just to the lusts of their hearts and impurity, but now to unnatural lusts. And John MacArthur rightly points out that when a man rejects the author of nature, he will inevitably abandon the order of nature. That's exactly right. So the next step in the downward spiral is the pursuit of unnatural relationships, which are a perversion of God's design. It is nothing 
uh, but an attack on God's created order, which is nothing but an attack upon God himself. But that's for next time, Lord willing. But before we close, notice the last little phrase in verse 25. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. So even here in this, you know, heavy section on, on God's wrath of abandonment, Paul just all of a sudden erupts in this celebration of praise. When, when he mentions the Creator, he immediately follows that with, who is blessed forever. Amen. And blessed is the Greek word from which we get our English word eulogy, which literally means to say a good word. Here, blessed is used synonymously with giving praise to God. You know, blessed forever means blessed be God, praise be to God. I mean, Paul just, he just couldn't go on any further with just the filth he was describing. I mean, he... He just couldn't hold back his, his adoration. He couldn't contain himself. You know, he had to express his, his love for the greatness of God and the glory of God. He just couldn't resist affirming what is due to God because God is worthy to be praised. He is blessed forever, Paul says. Literally, it's uh, he is blessed unto the ages. And this means that praise and worship are to be given to God throughout the ages to come. In other words, there should never be an end to the praise that is given to God. Why? Because He is worthy. He alone is worthy of all glory and honor and praise. That's why the psalmist said, Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but to Your name be the glory. And then Paul follows his call for eternal praise to God by saying, Amen. 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 Which means so be it, or verily, or truly, or surely. And it expresses certain affirmation in response to what has been said. And so Paul's amen is a strong affirmation that God is indeed blessed in himself. And not only that, it also expresses and confirms the trustworthiness of what Paul has said. And it's a call for these things to be fulfilled. So Paul isn't backing down from what he said. No, he's not trying to, to soften uh, what he's saying about God's wrath presently being revealed from heaven. There, there's no apology by Paul here. I mean, so many guys today in the pulpit almost apologize when they talk about these things. You don't apologize for this. It's the Word of God. This is what God is doing. So there's no, there's no apology here by Paul. There's nothing but a, a strong and hearty amen. Amen to every hard truth that he's taught in this section. I mean, Paul loves all that God is and all that, that God does and all that God will ever do. And this includes God's wrath of abandonment. And for this, Paul can only resound in praise for him. Praise. And so as a pastor friend of, my, of mine says, so what, guys? So what? You know, how are we supposed to respond to these truths? Well, there's probably uh, many ways. Let me just give you a few. First of all, Paul is teaching us here that uh, every single one of us had better be very careful to act upon the truth that we know. As I said earlier, the, the problem with most Christians is not that they don't know enough truth. The problem is they just don't want to do the truth they know. And so, so, and so many people then, many believers will go around trying to find somebody to agree with them or give, give them a way out because they don't want to have to believe that this is what they're really supposed to obey. They're really supposed to do this. So we had better be careful that we act upon the truth that we know. We're, we're to obey the truth whenever it's made known to us. I mean, there's, there's a principle here. 
God holds us responsible for the truth that's been revealed to us. We're accountable for the truth that we know. And to know the truth but not to act upon it, that's only going to increase one's condemnation from God. And it would be better not not to know the truth than to know the truth but reject it. Because the more truth a person knows, the greater his or her accountability to God. Now certainly a a believer is not going to be condemned. There There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But God is certainly going to hold each one of us accountable for the truth that we know. And our obedience or our lack of obedience will result in rewards or a lack of rewards. There's a far stricter judgment for those who know more truth than for those who know less. And so it's vitally important, it's critically important that every one of us respond to the truth whenever it's made known to us because God will certainly hold us accountable. The greater the truth given to us, the greater our responsibility to believe it and to live it. Secondly, the result of rejecting the knowledge of God leads to sexual immorality. Don't think that these deep sins against one's own body just mysteriously happen out of nowhere for no reason. I mean, it's extremely abundantly clear from this text that sexual immorality is the result of rejecting the truth of God and just going to live your life your way for yourself. We have to guard our hearts in order to remain pure. We cannot allow our eyes and our hearts to, our thoughts to go where they're forbidden to go, to think about things that that are forbidden for us to do. Let's not kid ourselves. I mean, this sin starts with apathy towards the truth of God and complacency toward the things of God. As believers, being lukewarm is a very dangerous place to be. In fact, the Bible warns us about that, doesn't it, in the letter to the church at Laodicea. Thirdly, this should cause a great sense of urgency with regard to our proclaiming of the gospel. I mean, those of us who are saved, we just can't sit back passively and, uh, you know, with the idea of, hey, I'm saved on my way to heaven. Thank you, Jesus. World's going to hell in a handbasket, but glory be to God, I'm going to heaven. And we sit back and do nothing. And all the while, those uh, who are unbelievers are drifting further and further away from God in their unbelief. They're being plunged deeper into their sin. And in light of this reality, we, we should be seeking to reach people with the gospel right now, right? People are dying all around us. We can't be passive. Too many passive Christians. And I could do a whole other sermon on that, but I'll restrain myself. We can't be passive. We have to be active, persistent when it comes to sharing the gospel. Because, loved ones, look, it's getting worse and worse. If God doesn't intervene, it's just going to get worse and worse. I mean, Paul told Timothy, of course, it was in the context of false teachers, but it's true of unsaved men in general. It's true of unbelieving cultures. Evil men and imposters will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. It's only going to get worse. And as people continue to reject God, they're just getting further and further away from God. And that's why... We need to share the gospel today, today. And we should ask God to break our hearts for the lost and to give us opportunity to share the gospel. And lastly, as I've mentioned throughout the study, this this passage here is, is, is the only explanation for the moral collapse that we're seeing in our nation and really around the world. 
I mean, we are living in the midst of a secular, humanistic, godless culture that, that can only be described by what we see here in Romans chapter 1. There's no other explanation. This text describes to a T where we're at today. I mean, we're, we're living right in the middle of this. And this passage, uh, as one man said, is more up-to-date than tomorrow's newspaper. That's because the Word of God is, is timeless. It is always relevant. And so this ought to have a real sobering effect upon us, shouldn't it? This ought to wake us up to the reality of what we're seeing take place all around us. This, this is what's wrong with America, and this is what's wrong with the world. People have rejected God. They've rejected God and His Word. They've believed the lie. And they're worshiping the creature rather than the Creator. And what about the church in this country? And how can mainline denominations declare that, uh, that homosexuality is an acceptable lifestyle? How can churches uh, accept and, and declare that you can be a homosexual and still be a Christian? How can churches and, and denominations uh, ordain to ministry those living in open homosexual sin? Well, here's the answer to that. That long ago, that church or that denomination rejected the authority of God's Word. They rejected the virgin birth, the deity of Christ, the bodily resurrection of Christ, and the exclusivity of salvation in Jesus Christ alone. And to do that is to sin against great light. But this is where those sins will lead a denomination. And the inevitable result of rejecting the infallibility, inerrancy, authority, and sufficiency of Scripture is God giving a people over to judgment. That's what you want? Fine. I'm going to remove my hand of restraining grace, and I'm going to give you over to just exactly what you want. But as I said, all hope is not lost. Because Christ uh, is still the answer, isn't he? Christ is our hope. The gospel is not bound. And so as long as someone is breathing, I mean, we should be sharing the gospel with them. And when anyone calls upon the name of the Lord, when they uh, believe in their heart that God uh, you know, has raised Jesus from the dead, and that he, that he died for their sin, and that they have offended him, by their sin, and they are on their way to an eternal hell. When they recognize that truth and they cry out to God to save them, he will. Because everyone that calls in the name of the Lord, what? Shall be saved. Well, in our next study, we'll pick up at verse 26. And there are two more statements of God giving them up for us to, to look at. And as I said a moment ago, this is right where we're at as a country. This is where we are. And what we've been looking at is where many denominations are in their, approving, or their approval of, of immorality. This is where a lot of churches find themselves. This is where many believers find themselves at this very moment because they thought that they were wiser than God and that they could live according uh, to their own rules as opposed to living according to the truth of God's Word. Let's stand and pray. On behalf of Pastor Jim Jarrett and everyone at Calvary Chapel Reading Palisadro, 
We hope and pray this study you just heard will help you grow in the Word. If you have any remaining questions or comments, please call us at 530-547-4400. That's 530-547-4400. Or write to us at P.O. Box 837, Palisadro, California, 96073. You can also email us through the website at ccredding.com. Thank you for listening, and may God richly bless you. Grow.